0: Holy Spirit, would you simply speak through me this morning? We pray the prayer of the disciples. Lord, teach us how to pray. Amen. We're going to continue our series entitled The School of Prayer. We're going to simply look at this verse this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You want to get your Bibles out. You're going to want to gird your loins. We're going to get after it this morning as we dissect this verse and talk about our fathers and our Heavenly Father. I asked the prayer group at 8.30 this morning to describe their relationship with their father, and it was eye-opening to say the least. Some had absent fathers, some had bitter fathers, some had uh, fathers that were, well, very few had fathers, I think, that were, had a good relationship with their father or was very warm to them. A lot of them had fathers that were, that were good and loving, but they just weren't available um, so you have this, this mix of, of fathers, and I wanted to begin this morning by talking about what I call the father effect uh, in a fatherly uh, journal dated May of 2018. This isn't anything I don't think new, but it serves as a reminder, and it is that dads matter. This is children of involved fathers. Listen to this. They're less likely to drop out of school, uh, engage in risky sexual behaviors, uh, break the law, are more likely to have high IQ scores. This is really amazing. Uh, pursue healthy relationships and hold down high paying jobs. Now, beyond that, which is really interesting, these next few sentences, there have been several studies that have investigated how a dad's specific decisions or parenting styles can influence his children, even the way that they, the children speak and hear. Do you know that? Studies have been shown that the lower decibel level of a father's voice, it signals a child's brain that they're dealing with someone capable of protecting them. And interesting. Uh, Dads also have tremendous influence over their children in terms of their social identities, uh, media consumption habits, attitudes, and friendships. We're talking about just the impact that earthly fathers have. Now, if you were to take that from a spiritual perspective... What impact does your earthly father have upon you? And studies reveal this, that it is the religious practice of the father of the family, above all, that determines the future attendance or absence from church of the children. Listen to these. This is really amazing. This is what one study showed, that if both father and mother attend regularly... 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers. If the father is irregular, and the mother is a regular church attender, only 3% of the children will subsequently become regular church attenders. If the father is non-practicing, In the mother, regular church attender, only 2% of children will become regular worshipers. Did you guys know that? Do you understand now why our enemy has attacked the family structure? what he's trying to do with the definition of marriage and so on. But, what happens if the father is a regular attender, but the mother is an irregular attender of church worship, or she's even non-practicing? Ready for this? Amazingly, the percentage of children becoming regular attenders of church goes from 33% to 38%. Even with the irregular mother attending church. And if they're not practicing, it goes up to even 44% will go to church, if the father is a regular attender. So, in short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful His wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. Fathers, are you feeling a little pressure? These statistics bear witness to the truth of God's word. Fathers are to do what with their children? Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Now, if a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. That's the father effect. Now, I want to talk to you about your heavenly father, or the fatherhood of God. this. All right. Where's the handheld that was here, Jacob? No, no, no. Oh, really? Even this one? Oh, okay. So we are really out of batteries. All right. Yeah, on the grocery list. Okay. I get a good arm workout, David, having to hold this. Okay. Well, I had a great introduction. You guys were following me well and everything, and then this happened, so. All right, let's talk about the fatherhood of God in the Jew, okay? I want to give you some background for Matthew 6, 9. He says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. We need a Bible workout this morning. Can you hear me? Is this good enough? All right. Is this being recorded then? We're back. Exodus 19. This image would have been imprinted on the conscience of a Jew. Now, Moses is consecrating the people in preparation for the Lord's appearance on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai on the third day. You see that in verse 11? Exodus 19, verse 11. But specifically, look at verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day, this is God had come down to meet the people. There were thunders and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. This is the way it is every day in my household. When I come down from praying upstairs, I walk down the stairs. Boom, my presence is known. Thunder and lightning and everything. The kids are ready to, to worship God. That'd be nice if that happened, wouldn't it? Yes. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So to all the people in the camp, what? They trembled. Okay? Go to Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. There's this image of this, and basically we're seeing the majesty of God. He is awesome. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is righteous and holy and He's enveloped in these clouds, and there's just thunder and lightning, and the earth is shaking at its very foundations at the presence of God. This is the response of the people, verse 18 to 21 of Exodus 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. Remind me, Mark, you need to get a trumpet that when I come to the house, you sound the trumpet. Okay, that'd be nice and cool. Okay. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, verse 19, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. Well, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So in other words, God, you are so awesome. And by awesome, I mean you are so different from us. You are so powerful. You're so mighty. It's, we tremble before you. We are uncomfortable approaching you. We will keep our distance. Have someone speak to you for us because we are afraid. That being said, despite this terrifying experience of God as powerful and unapproachable, the Old Testament Jew understood the meaning or something of the meaning of the fatherhood of God. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is describing the sinfulness of the Jews in very graphic terms. Turn to Isaiah 64, if you would. It is in this passage he will talk about how our most righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. In fact, he says, we are so evil, we don't even seek you anymore, Father. Are you everyone there, Isaiah? It's in the, kind of go to the middle of your Bible and make a right. If you open the Psalms, you'll make a right. So we are unworthy to be before you. We are, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We are overwhelmed by our sin. It consumes us. We don't even seek you. What is left for Isaiah to appeal then? Look at verse 8. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So Isaiah appeals to the comforting reality that God is their father, who takes care of his children. The Jews believe they came from God their father. Go back one chapter to verse 16 of Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not, know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. They came after Abraham, after Jacob or Israel, but they still said, you are our father, Lord. And as a father, they believed in a compassionate father. In other words, he's full of mercy, grace and tender heartedness. Just listen to Psalm one hundred three thirteen. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Keep in mind, how did God reveal himself to them on the mountain? Thunder and lightning in the and a cloud and the earth trembling. And here we see them, him as a father of compassion, compassion toward his children. In Psalm 68, it describes God's majesty and power in very vivid terms. He rides in the heavens and his enemies flee before him in his 20,000 chariots. Yet in the midst of this description of how awesome God is, we find in verse 5 this. He is the father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Yes, God is almighty, but He also is a Father to those without a father. You see, God likes to put people in His family. He wants a family. And with that comes a sense of a personal relationship. See, as a father, God leads them. In Jeremiah 31.9, Let's listen to this. With weeping they shall come, with pleas for mercy. I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of waters in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. See, his children will not stumble because as a father he loves them. He will not guide them down a crooked path. He is a good father, full of compassion, who understands his children's needs and is near at all times. This is why David said, "I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken." That's in Psalm 16:8. Unfortunately, all those verses that I just shared with you, and there are more did not endear the Jews to God. Well, why? Well, because as a father, yes, he's compassionate and full of tender and tenderness and grace and mercy and forgiveness and loving and will guide and provide and all of that. They were also required, as children are required to do, to obey their father. See, God would beget them, be near to them, be compassionate to them, guide them, but they were responsible to obey. Very clearly, Deuteronomy 32, where the law was given, verses 5 and 6, says this, they have dealt corruptly with him, meaning the Jews have dealt corruptly with, with the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you and established you? God is a holy and just and upright God who delivers people from bondage. He demands that we be like Him in our conduct. Holy and just and upright. And yet you treat me with contempt. You walk in sin. Do you treat your earthly father with such disrespect? Most of us would say no. But to go even deeper as to why as to the fatherhood of God in the Jews and their lack of an experience of God as a father there were two major philosophies historically that existed at the time of Jesus Christ in the Greek and Roman world. They were known as Stoics and Epicureans. There's forms of that around today, and we'll get into that in a moment here. But the Stoics said that God is absolutely apathetic and indifferent. The Epicureans said God is absolutely detached, totally uninterested, and isolated from every human condition. And this is how the pagans and the Romans... And quite frankly, some of the Jews thought of their gods, even though they used the term father. An indifferent, totally uninvolved, apathetic, absolutely detached father. I think we heard some of that this morning in our prayer. Uninterested, detached, earthly fathers. Those philosophies. Influenced Jewish thinking about God. So much so that at the time of Jesus, the concept of God as a loving father, sadly had been lost to the Jews. God became more and more distant. Now, here's the thing. God hadn't moved. They had moved. As they moved away from true worship and redefined their religion to tolerate sinfulness, they cut themselves off. From God's fatherly care. And as a result, they assumed that God was remote. He was distant. So much to the point that they even stopped using God's names. Remember that? They say it was a blasphemous thing to even mention the name of God. And so a wide gulf had developed as they lost the sense of God's fatherhood. And that is sad. And this is exactly why Jesus had to remind them of a loving, good, sustaining, heavenly Father. Just as a father in the world takes care of the needs of his children. Now jump ahead to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. That historical context Again, they had God as a father from the, the teachings of Moses and of David and of the prophets. And yet, at the time the very Son of God arrives, literally invades this planet, God is as a father is is lost. God is indifferent. He is distant. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. And now you understand why he wrote this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Folks, when we go to God and say, Father, we're not talking about some distant deity who is totally unconcerned and is only a father in position or title. We're talking about somebody who is loving, he's personally involved, and absolutely intimate. And so when Jesus utters the term, our Father, it is shocking to the Jews of his time. It awakens them to something lost long ago in the past. And it introduces a new kind of intimacy that they had never even understood Here it is. See, Jesus was about to bring God to men and make a new intimacy, a new nearness to God that had never been possible to mankind. Every time Jesus prayed, by the way, he always used the word Father. The scriptures record over 70 times he addressed God as Father in prayer. In fact, in only one prayer did he not use the word Father. While hanging on the cross, he cried out what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, only in sin bearing was he separated from the Father. And the intimacy that he had always known was absent. Because of our sin. It was only then that he did not say, Father. Now that's the fatherhood of God in the Jew. Let's jump to our time. The fatherhood of God in the Christian. Now despite the work of Jesus on the cross. That brought God to man in a new nearness. A new intimacy. Never available you hear me? Never available to the Old Testament saint. My observation as a missionary and pastor for over 27 years is that most believers do not know God personally. He remains a distant father. When God got my attention after growing up in the church and believing in Jesus Christ, to the ministry of the church and church retreats and church camps and youth groups and all that, I really remember kind of rededicating my life to the Lord and coming home from a church camp, but my church never taught me what it meant to walk with God and the churches I attended. I guess they thought it was enough that if I just came to church for an hour or an hour and a half on a Sunday and that I was going to fall in love with the Lord and I was going to walk with Him and learn how to pray and, 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 and become a, a follower of Jesus Christ like you read in the New Testament. Of course, that never happens. That's never enough. But when I got to college my freshman year and I, I really committed my life to Jesus Christ and to to walk with him in February of 1989. Through July of 1991, I pursued him in this way. This will be to you, I hope, convicting and also incredibly disappointing and depressing to you, to be honest with you. Because I look back over this, going over this, and it really is sad. But from February of 1989 To July of 1991, so from my second quarter of my freshman year in college to the summer before of my senior year in college, this is what I did. There was daily Bible reading. There was countless hours spent in personal prayer. Hours spent in corporate prayer meetings, and I mean hours. We were... Involved in campus ministry would have prayer meetings. I think you went to some of those when I was, you and I were there. I mean, these were not, you know, half hour or hour. These were two or three hour prayer meetings. So I'm spending countless hours in personal prayer. I am regularly reading my Bible. I'm in constant fellowship, it seems like. I was leading a Bible study during that time. I was attending a Bible study. I had a weekly campus meeting and weekly worship at a local church. So I'm in the word of God. I'm teaching the word of God. I'm receiving the word of God and teaching. And during these fellowship times and weekly meetings, there is worship going on and there is prayer. There was weekly discipleship meetings on top of that for during a week where I would meet with my disciple or he would set me for two hours. During that time as well, I was meeting with three or four men a week for at least an hour. So you're talking a massive amount of time. That I am in the Word of God, I am learning and I am feeding, I am spending time with God in prayer and in worship and in receiving teaching. And I haven't gotten to the worst part yet. And there's a reason why we joke that we used to call Campus Crusade for Christ Campus Crusade for Conference. These are the conferences that I went to during that time frame. I went to a fall retreat where I got more Bible study and sermons, more prayer time, more fellowship and worship. I then went to a Christmas conference. So in other words, when I came back in the summer or the fall of 89, I went to a fall retreat. Then I went to a Christmas conference. It was a week of Bible study, sermons, prayer, fellowship, worship, and evangelism. Then I went to a spring break in the Spring of 90, the Spring Break Conference, down in Daytona Beach, Florida, for another week of Bible study, sermons, prayer, fellowship, worship, and a whole lot of evangelism on the beach. Then I went to my own spring retreat at Ohio University for Bible study, sermons, prayer, fellowship, and worship, followed by a summer project, which was two months of eight-hour work days, five days a week, daily Bible reading and personal prayer, Four times a week I was sharing my faith on the boardwalk. I was in fellowship all the time. Two sermons a week that didn't include the sermon I received on a Sunday at church. At a weekly Bible study I was in, I was being discipled for two hours once a week. And then, of course, Sunday church. I'd also gone to spring retreat the spring of 89 when I got involved with Camp Savior Christ. I also went to what is called a leadership retreat, or we used to call it a CAG retreat, a central action group retreat, and that was more Bible study, sermon, prayer, worship, and fellowship. So I'd gone through multiple retreats and conferences. And I was out doing ministry, multiplying my life into the lives of men. How many of you can say that you've ever done that much religious activity? You've been exposed to the Word of God, and you've prayed, and you've worshiped for it's a pretty intense time. And it's a constant flow of 30, maybe 25 to 30 hours a week at least of that. With all of that religious activity, and this is what is really, really depressing, God was not personal to me. I was too busy in religious activity. The God that I read about in the Old and New Testament who talked to his children and they talked to him, I did not know. It looked good on the outside, right? I didn't know. And so I began to question, what was the point of my religious activity? And the honest truth, I mean, if you really want to know the truth, the honest truth was this. I had more in common with the Pharisees. In John 5, 37 to 4, just listen to this. It says, and The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, his voice you have never heard. His form you've never seen. He is speaking to these men who have memorized large portions of the Bible, of the law, that spent hours in prayer, probably more time in prayer than I I did, easily, I would say, that were living holy lifestyles. They were in fellowship. They would pray three times a day. They would go to the synagogue daily. Observing the Sabbath. All of that. And he says about them, his voice, the Father's voice, you have never heard. His form you've never seen. Folks, that was me. And he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But here's the contrast in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. So all of that activity, religious activity, good religious activity. People, God worked through my evangelism. Uh, people were walking with the Lord. People had to come to Christ. Uh, disciples were being made. They were falling in love with the Lord. During all of that, the result of all of that activity in the summer of 1991, I was burned out. burned out from two years of ministry activity in school. And I hurt my back. You remember the story, put it in a basketball hoop in our home in Chardon, Ohio, and was laid up for the summer, and that was the summer I had time to extensively slow down, read my Bible, pray, and the biggest thing I had to do was just rest. And that summer, a hunger for a more personal relationship with God grew within me. Because I tell you one thing, I certainly didn't want to go back to what had been before. Do you understand what I was being taught? It wasn't that they, what, they didn't talk about Christianity being a relationship. Of course I knew about that. They taught that. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. You've heard me say that to you. And we would talk about that. And then the relationship was marked by relentless religious activity. was busy, busy doing the Lord's work. When I slowed down, which is what I've been trying to get you guys to do, a hunger for a more personal relationship with God grew within me because I didn't want to go back to what I had known before. See, I wanted what I read about in King David's life. He would ask God for a specific direction and God would answer him. He would say, shall I attack this army this way? And he says, yes, attack this way, you'll be victorious. Next time, shall I attack this army this way? No, don't go this way. Go around this way and attack. I could never, that was never my experience. Such specific direction. It reminded me of of God talking to Abraham. It was a very normal conversation, but it was a talking with God. See, my prayer had been talking to God, but not with God. I wonder what the Apostle Paul had. Three times he pleaded with the Lord, take this thorn in my flesh. And what did God say to him? Very specifically, my power is what? It's perfected in weakness. But David, Paul, others, they had a personal relationship with God. They heard his voice. They received specific instruction Encouragement. And so that summer God led me to a book by Peter Lord called Hearing God. There's nothing special about that book, but it's just God was at work within me. And he used that book to revolutionize my relationship with him. Simply put, I learned to hear his voice. And to describe my experience as I was recalling this, it literally felt like God exploded right in front of my face. He became personal. That was the dominant word. God is personal. Prayer was no longer me talking to God. Prayer became me talking with God. Maybe you can relate to that story. Maybe you can't. But I want to ask this question and answer it. Why do many Christians not know God as an intimate father? Now I don't want to sit there and and tell you that and and, and let you believe that, well I had a bad earthly father and and that that's the reason why. Okay, yes, I, I I don't doubt that, but that's not your heavenly father. Quite frankly, you're not going to get a lot of love from me. Get over it. That's a crutch. Get off that crutch. You have a Heavenly Father who loves you. I'm here this morning to destroy any wrong concepts of God as a Father. But why don't many Christians, or why do many Christians not know God as an intimate Father? Well, let me suggest several reasons. Number one is what I call, you've heard this before, it's just the ongoing effects of the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. Remember what the Enlightenment was? It was man's coming of age. As Immanuel Kant said this, it was man's emergence from the immaturity which caused him to rely on such external authorities as the Bible, the church, and the state, to tell him what to think and do. It says no generation should be bound by the creeds and customs of bygone ages. Says to be bound so is an offense against human nature, whose destiny lies in progress. In other words, truth was not; well, it was no longer the word of God, fulfilled scripture, fulfilled prophecy in the, in the scriptures. That was put away, and truth was now determined by human reason. Of course, that led to what number two, the second point of why. We don't know God as the Intimate Father, and that's the rise of deism. And deism is alive and kicking today, folks. I mean, my that is is this. Deism states that God exists, but leaves the conduct of life to man in his reason. Now, the following list of men were Enlightenment thinkers. Manuel Kant, Isaac Newton, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. These men have a deistic view of God. That God winds the earth up like a clock, and then does what? He sits back and lets it play itself out with little, if any, involvement. And let me just say to you, that that is probably 90% of the people here in this room. It's even taught in the church. What do you mean by that? Remember Chuck Swindoll? Learn a lot from him. This is an Insight for Living radio program on October 10th, 1988. It says, Our God is some distant deity sitting around in heaven answering theological questions. When you have that being taught, okay, in the church, but the reason why that I believe is that Chuck Swindoll and others also lead to the third reason why people don't really know God as an intimate father, and that is just the cessationist teaching. You know what that is, right? If we stated, cessationists believe that since we have the completed Bible, this right here, the canon of Scripture it's called, that God no longer speaks to his children through impressions, dreams, visions, prophecies, tongues, etc. He only speaks through the Bible. And secondly, the miraculous gifts given to the church were given to authenticate the apostles as they are the authors of the New Testament. With their deaths, there was no need for miraculous gifts because God wasn't going to speak anymore because we had all that he needed to say in this book. And that is out there even today. You will never forget this, Erica. I will never forget this. Sitting in our home in Bowling Green, uh, we welcomed a new staff couple to our, our, our staff meeting that day, and our, our campus director wasn't there, and so this new gentleman was leading the meeting, and he wanted to change the name of one of the, the train times of prayer, talking with God, to prayer, talking to God. Well, why? He was a cessationist. God did speak. And that was not, did not go over well with the majority of staff. It led to conflict in the team, and eventually that couple had to leave over a period of years. But the idea that God is distant is not personally involved. Do you think God cares what car you buy? What house you buy? Do you think you can get guidance for a specific house or a specific car? Or what college to go to? Most in the church would say no. So what's left? But what's left is religious activity. And that's the fourth point of why we don't really know God intimately as a father is that we value doing over being. Phil Newton wrote this, our culture values doing over being. As long as we give ourselves to religious activities, then we consider ourselves spiritual. If you are are involved in a lot of religious activities, that doesn't make you any more spiritual than an ant. Newton goes on to write, Yet prayer provides more of a barometer of the soul than the most feverish activity. For in prayer, we are encountering the living God, bearing our souls before Him, contemplating Him, and seeing Him alone as our Father and Lord. So we have the fatherhood of God for the Jew, and we have the father of God for the Christian. In my estimation, there's not a whole lot of difference. God is still too distant, despite the fact that he is a loving, heavenly Father. And as I said it before, I'll say it once more. Part of the reason why that is, apart from these four points I just gave you, is the fact that you've been in this American church system that has done nothing but make you a spiritual parasite. You come, you get fed, you take, you consume, and you give very little back. Because there's no real reason to, because you're never going to receive direction from the Lord, because you don't think that he really cares and is that personal and intimate. So you go through religious activity, it's a very dry orthodoxy, it's a very impersonal, Religion is really what it is. It's dry. There's just no life there. It was never meant to be that way. So let's talk about this. The paternity of God. Now, my son Mark will get a kick out of this. Jesus says this Pray then like this. See that? Verse, chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. This. Command is an imperative. It's in the present tense. Meaning prayer is not to be occasional religious practice, but is a way of life. It is to be as natural to the Christian as breathing is to every human. So the Apostle Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. He is simply reinforcing the teachings of Jesus. Some of you may recall George Mueller. The great Christian of old. A couple hundred, two hundred years ago. He was a great man of prayer. It was asked how much time he spent in prayer. His reply was, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk, when I lie down, and when I rise. He says, the answers are always coming. You see, prayer for George Mueller was a way of life. That's exactly what pray then like this means. It's a way of life. Now, he says, pray then like this. And we're going to stop right there for a moment. Don't skip over this word. I hope you're encouraged by this. Because while God is the Father of all creation, He is not the Father of all in relation. Does that make sense? The right to call Him Father in a relationship is, is reserved only for who? His children. Do you know what that makes prayer then? Is it a duty or is it a privilege? When we went over to Russia in the May of 1998 to adopt our son Jacob, we walked into the orphanage where he was staying and saw a row of about I thought it was about a dozen cribs. You must say it was like 30 or 40 cribs full of these young, I think it was all boys that where we were. Now of all the children in the orphanage, only one would be called my son and receive all the love and resources that we, Eric and I, had available to him. Only one had the right to call me Father. the same is true of our Heavenly Father. See, It's only those that He chose in eternity past, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, have the right to call Him Father. He is our Father. This is not for everybody. Your unbelieving neighbor cannot call God their Father and relate to Him. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Do you know how blessed you are? Are you encouraged by this, I hope? Okay? You have a loving Heavenly Father. He is our Father. Now watch this. He's our Father in Heaven. This is where my son Mark's going to get a kick out of this. The word in Greek for Father is what, Mark? Pater. P-A-T-E-R. I will call Mark often, and he will say what? Pater. Yes, Pater. Pater. I've taught him this. However, Mark, when Jesus spoke, he didn't speak Greek. Did you know that? He spoke Aramaic. And the word for father in Aramaic is what? Abba. And that means daddy. Abba was the enduring term used by a little child for its father. So, in fact, the the Talmud says, you know, the the Jewish teaching, that the first thing ever learned, a child ever learned to say, was Abba. Now, when we say our Father in Heaven, this implies several characteristics. I don't have these up here, but you may want to write these down. Because I want you to meditate on these throughout the week. Number one, it means intimacy. God is to be personal. Prayer is not talking to God. It is talking with God. It is enjoying being in his presence. Psalm 139.3 says this. This is, by the way, true of you, because this is about your heavenly father, your creator. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. There is a bird in the Arctic region called the guillemot. You ever heard of that? Small Arctic seabird that lives off the, or on the rocky cliffs of northern coastal regions. Now, these birds flock together by the thousands in comparatively small areas. Because of the crowded conditions, hundreds of females lay their pear-shaped eggs side by side in a long row on a narrow ledge. Why they do this, I have no idea, but that's where they lay their eggs. Now, since the eggs all look alike, it's really incredible that a mother Guillemot can identify those eggs that belong to her. Studies show that she knows her own eggs so well, even when one is moved, she finds it and returns it to its original location. See, she is never confused. She is intimately knowledgeable of her eggs. Now, there's a closeness to God that a Jew could never imagine. Our Father in Heaven no longer dwells in an ark behind a curtain that only a high priest visits briefly once a year. What happened to the curtain? Been torn in two. So, God, remember this, in all of his fullness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where does he now dwell? Inside us, who are being built into a dwelling place of God. That, folks, is an incredible thought. So, when you say our Father in heaven, you have an, there's a sense of intimacy that is implied there. It also implies that he cares. Luke's version of Matthew 7, I had you look at, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Remember that? No, God cares for you. He loves you. He will give you what you are asking for. And particularly Luke's version says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He will give you more of him if you want. That's the point. Number three, it implies when you say our Father in heaven, that there are infinite resources available to the child of God. Let me go into detail on this. Psalm 24.1. So on earth, these are the resources available to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So what resources did God on earth have available to him? Do you not understand the question? Everything. It's all his. So if you need shelter, God has it at his disposal. You need food? God has it at his disposal. Remember, he owns cattle on a thousand hills. You need clothing? God has it at his, at his disposal. He even dresses the flowers of the field. So he will most certainly dress his children whom values far more than flowers. So there's infinite resources available to the child of God. That's just, folks, on earth. How about in heaven? Because remember, it is our Father who art in heaven. He has all of the supernatural domain at his disposal. Think about that. We are blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, which means all that heaven is, is available to us in Christ. He is a loving, heavenly Father who has all the resources of heaven. So if you want satisfaction in this life, you find it in heaven and God has it at his disposal. Do you want fairness? God has it in heavenlies. Do you want peace? Peace. God has it readily available. Do you need wisdom? God will give it to you. It's all there. We pray to a father who has absolutely eternal resources. It also implies when we say our father in heaven, he is giving. We remind you that God is the first and foremost giver. He gives physical life. He gives spiritual life. He gives the Holy Spirit. He gives peace. He gives us victory through Christ. He gives us wisdom. He gives grace. He gives us inheritance. On and on and on it goes. So God, our Father, is stingy, right? Well, no, He's generous. He is giving. He is good, too. He is good. Zechariah 9.17, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. God isn't just good. He is great in goodness. Now, I want to be clear on this. Whenever we struggle in life, whenever we are going through a test, what's the first thing that we question or doubt? His goodness. And I'm here to tell you No. He is good. He's loving. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself. He adopted you for one reason, one motivation. What was it? Love. He is also, as our Father in heaven, he is omniscient. He knows what you need before you ask him. I will never forget graduating from college. It was this, it uh, would have been June of 1992. To celebrate, you know, graduation party, my brother and dad and I went out to the golf course. We were on the first tee, getting ready to tee up. And my dad says, you know, we need to get you a graduation gift. He said, I think we'll get you a computer. I had no idea that I needed a computer. This was the first thing from my mind. All right, you want to get me a computer? That's great. So they got me a computer. My brother set it up and I had this computer. I had no idea how much I needed a computer for ministry and what I was doing. That was 1992. Today, yeah, I know I need a computer. But you see, God knew. And he provided through my father. Now, I'm going to close with this. It's what I call the heavenly Father effect. We talked about the earthly father effect. Here is the heavenly father effect. As our earthly fathers have a great effect upon us, so does our heavenly father. But what effect does he have? Well, I think our heavenly father puts to final rest these issues. Number one, fear or anxiety. What has God provided? for you so that you can come into his presence all the time. He's provided grace. He set his grace upon you. You need not fear coming into his presence. He's not some pagan god that you have to appease. There's no need for fear. Number two, he is forever put to rest the issue of hope. He has provided a living hope through His Son and a future glory that awaits you and what else awaits you in heaven? Hope will be realized. I'll be glorified body. And what else awaits me? An inheritance. Riches. He puts to rest the issue of provision. He knows what you need before you do. And has an unlimited earthly and heavenly resources to meet your needs and not just your needs, folks, he will even meet your desires. How about the issue of loneliness? What has he promised you as a loving heavenly father? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How about wisdom? You need guidance? He has promised that if we lack wisdom, what do we do? Ask him. He will answer. And he knows all things. How about security? You want to be secure? You want to be protected? He is our refuge, He is our strong tower, He is our protector. So when we say our Father, who is in heaven, He is a good, loving, personal, heavenly Father. And He longs to literally explode in your face like He did to me and become personal. He wants to speak to you. He wants to guide you. So much so that He says, I will give you someone special to help you with that and to cultivate that. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Oh, if we would learn to recognize His ways. So when we pray and we pray in the name of Jesus, which is the same thing as praying in the name of the Father, we are coming before a very loving, personal, good, giving gracious, tender, forgiving, merciful, providing, Father, who is to be known and experienced and loved and cherished. And there we find life. So I want you to do this. I want you to meditate on those characteristics that I share with you this morning. Go before him. Pray to him as your father. He cares for you. He loves you. And he can't wait to meet with you. Let's pray.